This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the latest spike in random attacks and violent crime in our province. We've seen some absolutely heartbreaking cases. On the weekend, we had a man, throat his throat was cut on a bus in Surrey. Uh, the investigation continuing there. And then, of course, we had the tragic murder of Paul Schmidt, uh, the dad outside the Starbucks store. Have a listen to his parents here. It's Stan and Kathy Schmidt here talking to CBC. Have a listen. He was a great guy. He was a total family man. He loved his daughter. He lived for his daughter. It's, it's just, it's, it's unimaginable that this happened to him. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Very pleased to join us again. Steve, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, first, Steve, let's talk about the uh, the Starbucks murder here. Mm-hmm. And this is one was absolutely shocking. Uh, what is the latest on this? You know, we do have an arrest here, of course, in this case. Yeah, we have an arrest. Um, we have a, a suspect who was immediately taken into custody. He's since been charged with second-degree murder. Our investigation is is ongoing, but there's a significant body of evidence uh, that has allowed us to make that arrest and obtain a um, a very serious charge here. So um, this incident, I, listen, I know it's unnerving. We hear incidents like this one, uh, like the incident from the weekend with the, the, the randoms uh, throat slashing on the transit bus, and they're extremely unnerving to people. Um, I think what makes them so unnerving and 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 so and, and affects people so much is that these are people that we relate to. Uh, they're our neighbors, they're our family members. We can see ourselves there. In the case of the the incident at the Starbucks, it happened, um, you know, broad daylight on a Sunday afternoon, busy Sunday afternoon, and we can all really picture ourselves being in that situation, whether it's being the victim or being a witness or or, or um, uh, just being in the area. So um, that really. Um, makes these incidents resonate with people. And, uh, you know, we always have always said that, you know, um, recognizing this, talking about it, um, understanding what's happening here is, is really an important step towards um, uh, correcting this, this challenge, this public, incredible public safety challenge that we're facing. Um, and um, we, we're seeing more and more people who are, who are now recognizing it and, and starting to talk seriously about it. So hopefully we're moving in the right direction yeah. to, towards solving um, this problem. Right, and of course you mentioned the incident on the weekend where a man had his throat slashed on a bus in Surrey. Let's listen to this report here now. You're going to hear Global News reporter Julia Foy and also Amanda Steed, spokesperson, Vancouver Transit Police. Let's have a listen. Surrey residents were shocked to learn that there was a knife attack on a bus traveling along Fraser Highway around 9.30 Saturday morning. An altercation that took place on a bus between two males. Uh, During that altercation, one of the males allegedly removed a knife and slashed the other male across the neck. As a Surrey case, Steve, what what can you comment on generally about the these random attacks? Like once again, we hear we have an attack between an assailant and a victim that don't appear to know each other. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the thing, like you said, is disturbing. They're they're incredibly unnerving. Um, we're now seeing that it's not just a Vancouver or Lower Mainland phenomenon. We're hearing similar stories in other uh, big cities, uh, namely Toronto. You know, listen. I wish I had the words to ease everybody's minds. It used to be that we could you know, make people feel better by saying, listen, these incidents are rare. You shouldn't have to worry about your safety. But um, when, we, when we're when we hearing about uh, these extremely, um, seemingly unprovoked, um, uh, seemingly random incidents that are happening um, week after week, 
Yeah, it would be extremely disingenuous to tell people that they shouldn't be concerned. We understand that people are concerned. Um, we don't have all of the answers, but what we do know and what is coming into better focus is an understanding that um, a lot of the, the things that are driving these are, are beyond the criminal justice system beyond the scope of the police. And we're talking about things like uh, mental health, specifically untreated mental health. We're talking about substance use, um, oftentimes a combination of the two. And um, case after case that we're seeing here in Vancouver um, with random and unprovoked incidents are committed, sadly, by people who are struggling with um, serious untreated mental health issues and substance use issues. It's a a real big problem. Steve Addison, thank you very much for your time this morning. You bet, Mike. I appreciate it. Sergeant Steve Addison there, spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Let's check in with Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West now, who has been raising concerns about this trend. Mayor West, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what goes through your mind when we continue to see these incidents? Well, it's it's gut-wrenching. Um, you know, uh, we relate to it on, on a personal level i mean i I think of this this gentleman uh with his family uh you know had uh, same uh child the age of of mine and you know it it twists you up inside um you know the the idea that you're out enjoying a day with your family and and then something like this happens and and to read about how he's such a hard-working person um trying to make life better for for him and his family um it's got to stop uh you know how many times do we have to hear a story like this before people wake up and finally take some action not just not just say words mike but actually do something about it um you know so this sort of stuff doesn't happen on the, our streets anymore so it it's what, been really what hard what do you think needs to be at the top of the to-do list? Well, I think what we've seen over uh, a number of years is that our uh, so-called justice system has uh, been a joke, quite frankly. Um, you know, it has begun with a number of decisions by the Supreme Court, which I think are just completely out of touch with reality and common sense. Uh, the the Zora decision of the Supreme Court uh, where the court ruled that uh, bail conditions should be as narrowly defined as possible. Uh, that, in turn, uh, led to Bill C-75 uh, that instructed police and courts to favor release over detention. You know, the reality is, Mike, that there are some people who need to be detained because what we've seen in many cases uh, is that when they aren't, they continue to offend. They continue to reoffend, And it's innocent people on our streets who pay the price for that. And so I think that our, again, so-called justice system has gone entirely out of touch uh, and completely uh, backwards in its approach. Um, we need, obviously, to address mental illness. We need to get people help that they need. But compassion is also a two-way street. Where's the compassion for the family that's minding their own business and gets attacked? Where's the compassion for the business owner who's had their uh, business broken into time after time after time? Uh, We need to bring balance back to the equation. All right, here we go with high-tech auto theft in British Columbia. Yeah, the bad guys are getting smarter here. They know how to break into your vehicle. They know how to work around your anti-theft security software. They know how to copy your key fob. They know how to steal your car in 60 seconds flat here and then get that vehicle out of the country too and have it sold on the black market overseas i got robert harris erica rayworth standing by from the integrated auto crime team in bc this month is auto theft auto crime enforcement month and we'll talk about how you can protect yourself from auto theft first have a listen to this report now from global news on high-tech auto theft dealing with stolen cars nothing new for police but this is another level I was surprised because I know that these cars can be stolen in this manner, but it shocked me to see how quickly, simply, this happened. Forget about prying open the car door or stealing keys. 
This carjacking operation works off a couple of iPads in a backpack and a cable antenna known as a signal booster. Watch how quickly it happens. The cable is hung by the front door. It detects the key fob inside the house, records the code, then that code is used to start the vehicle, and within 18 seconds, the car is gone. The cars are being exported out outside of Canada. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest. we got Sergeant Robert Harris on the line, Integrated Municipal Provincial Auto Crime Team. That's IMPACT in BC. Very pleased to welcome Sergeant Harris. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah, you bet. Also on the line, Corporal Erica Rayworth, also with the IMPACT Auto Crime Team. Hi, Erica. Hi, Mike. Okay, thank you to both of you. Robert, let me go to you first. Let's talk about how some of these auto thefts are going high-tech. This actually happened to our family. Our family minivan was was ripped off, and someone was able to copy a key fob, which was, uh, was shocking to us. How do, they, how do these guys do this? Well, Mike, I guess I can't go into explicit details, but I, it's no different than uh, a locksmith or car dealership. Uh, might be able to do should you lose your vehicle or lose your car keys to your vehicle. And uh, they're just using that technology, obviously, for criminal purpose. Yeah, how about the auto theft prevention systems? Like a lot of these new, these sort of newer vehicles are supposed to be kind of almost theft-proof, aren't they? These guys know how to work around this stuff. Yeah, that's exactly it. They've, they've learned how to do that. Um, obviously, it's you know, for, for reasons, like I said, should you lose a key or a new key need to be made for your vehicle, there is workarounds to make that happen. So they've, uh, they've uh, acquired the tools, however they've uh, uh. done that, whether it's online or ordering it uh, through a website and um, taught themselves or shown how to use it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Corporal Rayworth, is, high, is this type of auto theft on the rise? Yeah, actually, it's uh, it's kind of uh, pretty popular back east in Ontario right now. Um, so it's kind of moved west out to us here. So we're seeing it uh, kind of pop up. Uh, our team obviously has kind of experienced a little bit of this. Um, mostly people from the east coast, uh, certain organized crime groups have come out here and targeting the, that style of um, thefts. And uh, we've seen a little bit more of that come up recently. Yeah, that's amazing. And we heard in that global report how quickly a car can be stolen if some of these very, very sort of elite thieves can use this this high-tech system to steal vehicles. Is this, like we heard Robert say there, you know, these guys can download stuff from the Internet. They can figure out how to do this online. Like Corporal Rayworth, would you say... Is it difficult for these thieves to figure out how to steal these high-end vehicles, or is the information sort of floating out there on the on the dark web or the internet? Yeah, I think it's definitely out there. Um, these thieves are kind of targeting uh, once they find out what makes and models are good for that kind of technology that they're seeing. They go out and they target that. So um, you know, we're seeing within this last last batch of vehicle thefts, we've, we're seeing like the high-end Lexuses, Land Rovers, Forerunners, Ford Raptors, Jeep Wranglers. So they kind of find what works for them and that technology in order to steal those. And, and then they just, they go at it. Oh, man. Okay. Speaking to Sergeant Robert Harris, Corporal Erica Rayworth, they're with the auto crime impact team here in BC. Uh, Robert, how difficult are is it to crack these cases? Like if you if you have your car ripped off like this, how often how how difficult is it to to crack these cases and solve these cases and get the vehicle stolen vehicle back? Um, it's well, it's incredibly difficult at first until we sort of are even alive to the fact that the trend is happening. Um, so at, at the start, it, it can be hard, but um, there is things. Um, so vehicle owners can do to help us find their vehicle. Um, that can be as, yeah. as that can be as easy as you know using something like an Apple AirTag um, and putting a secondary GPS device in your vehicle can really help us find your vehicle a lot quicker. Um, and obviously, there's applications and all new vehicles now that people can subscribe to uh, through Sirius Radio or GM OnStar, something like that. And those type of services really do help us find the vehicles faster. But just based on on uh, regular uh, investigative techniques, it can be difficult. 
Yeah. Yeah, I remember when our car was ripped off, our family minivan was gone. Uh, the police were able to, to find it a few days later after someone, I guess, taken it for a bit of a, a joyride. So we were able to get it back. But I know a lot of these vehicles end up shipped out of the country. Is that right, Erica? Like a lot of these vehicles will be smuggled out of Canada? Yeah, absolutely. We're, you know, we're looking at like the higher end um, vehicles that are being shipped out. There's a big market of it um, overseas, like in Dubai, Africa. So we're seeing these high end specifically vehicles being put into containers and uh, shipped overseas. Wow. Wow. Okay. And why is that happening? Is there is there just a lucrative market overseas for these vehicles, or just make the the bad guys figure they they makes it tough for them to get caught if they can get the stolen vehicle out of the country? Yeah, it's actually quite um, financially um, worth it. They you know Land Rover mm. here you can get three times the amount overseas. So wow. you know they they found that and uh, kind of taking advantage of it. Wow. Okay. This is. Auto Crime Enforcement Month. Let's talk a little bit about that, Robert. What do you want the public to know here? Because you are, you've got a message to the public here, to some tips on how to prevent your vehicle from being stolen in the first place, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's an annual campaign we do on our social media and, uh, and through the news. It's just the annual reminder, essentially, for people to lock their vehicles, keep track of your keys, be mindful of your vehicle security. Um, just because cars are new, like you like you already said, uh, they can still be stolen. And um, it's really the same advice we've been, we've been putting out for the last uh, two decades that we've been around. Um, good advice never gets old, and it's just to make sure people are mindful of that. Yeah, so, you know, some of this stuff is is kind of common sense. Lock your vehicle, remove or hide valuables in the belong don't leave valuables out in plain sight erico any other tips uh yeah just for the the high-end vehicles you know um <clears throat> consider like if you have a really high-end vehicle consider a secondary gps you know an apple air tag um and then most of these thieves are targeting these vehicles you know parked you know roadside just make it inconvenient for these these thieves to to grab your high-end g-wagon or anything like that just make it very inconvenient for them to do so Right. And you mentioned earlier that a lot of this kind of high tech auto theft is is really roaring and raging back east in Ontario. But now we're sort of seeing it move, move west. Can you tell me a little bit about the case you were, you were able? It was last year, May, May of last year, a uh, bunch of vehicles stolen from the lower mainland, Land Rovers, high end Ford pickup trucks. And then they were tracked down in, was it Dubai where they were found? Yes, yeah, uh, a bit of that and then a bit of here. So um, we had, uh, it was an organized crime group from back east that actually just flew into YVR here, and they decided to target, you know, like you said, the Lexuses, uh, the higher-end vehicles. We had some Land Rovers, Lexuses, Ford Raptors, uh, all throughout the lower mainland. Um, So we had over 20 vehicles uh, stolen. Um, By the time we got onto it, you know, we started uh, obviously to investigate this group and we were able to catch them kind of red-handed while they're loading these vehicles into the containers set to go back to Dubai. So we were able to actually intercept a lot of these containers on their way through and some of them did eventually make it to Dubai and then also some of them were uh, intercepted here. Man, oh man. Okay, well, I'm glad to know that there's an integrated enforcement team that's working on this to try and recover some of these stolen vehicles. Some really good tips today for people to prevent their vehicle from being stolen in the first place. I want to thank both of you for coming on today. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mike. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? 
it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Well, boy, just listening to the voice of Red Robinson, and when you heard him say there at the end that he did everything he wanted to do in life, boy, that's a that's a life well lived. But how sad that we lost Red on the weekend. He passed away suddenly, age of 86. And I feel very privileged I was able to interview Red a couple of times over the years. And, man, what a giant on the music scene here in British Columbia and Vancouver over the years. Let's talk about Red Robinson's career now and his legacy with my guest, Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And, and you know, you go through Red's life. I mean, he won. He won. He beat all mm. the odds. Um, there was no reason for anybody to think that rock and roll was going to be around for longer than 18 months back in the day of the yeah. early 1950s. I mean, even in the 60s, newspaper people were asking the Beatles what they were going to do after their first album. Like as if they weren't yeah. going to stick around for another eight years and have a 60 year legacy um, and then some. But, you know, in the beginning of rock and roll, I mean, Red was right there, right place, right person, right time, right moments. It, it's truly astonishing. Yeah, no, he really was amazing, and he started his career uh, when he was a teenager, and maybe that was one of the secrets of his success. I mean, at a time when rock and roll was a new type of music that kids were listening to, and he was a kid himself, and uh, maybe that helped him to understand what they wanted to hear, right? Yeah, and, and it's funny to look back on that fact, because I'm not so sure that you could have done it now. I'm not so sure that the general audience would have such an outpouring of love and respect to somebody who's a teenager on social media that is bringing um, whole new music or an art form to people. Um, but, you know, when he was just 17 years old, um, he had his first rock and roll show, the first one in, in Vancouver back in 1954. And everything that followed when it came to rock and roll, he was very much of the center of it. When Bill Haley and the Comets played in 1956, he was the MC at Elvis Presley's show in 1957. And keep in mind, this these... The Elvis show was one of the less than handful of times that Elvis Presley even did a show outside of America. Um, he did one in Vancouver, he did one in Toronto, and pretty much that was it. And of course, when the Beatles appeared um, at the Empire in 1964, Red was the MC. I mean, there was nobody else that could have done what he did, um, and maybe because he was so young. Yeah, no, it really is incredible. Let's go back in time here, Eric. Let's have a listen to Red here talking about the Elvis show. So as you mentioned, Red Robinson was the MC of that show, Elvis Presley at Empire Stadium, August 31st, 1957. And you'll hear Red here reminisce on, on his role in bringing Elvis to Vancouver to perform. Have a listen to this. I had written uh, in 1955 and six to Colonel Tom Parker, can we get Elvis into Vancouver, okay? And the answer I got back, I could see the cigar and hear him go, Yes, sir! Yeah, he'll come there when we play the Northwest, yes! When Zolly Volchuk, out of Seattle, booked Elvis into Portland, Seattle, Spokane, and Vancouver, he had a note from Colonel Parker saying, In Vancouver, you call this young, this jockey. I want him to see it. <laughs> I, I just I just love that. You know, here he's yeah. writing to Colonel Tom Parker and yeah, yeah yes, Colonel sir. Tom we're Parker. bringing Elvis. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow, and look for, for, and, for, for all these younger listeners, a letter is something that people used to write with a pen <laughs> on paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. And I just keep in mind when Red Robinson did that, when he reached out to Colonel Tom Parker, and said, can you bring Elvis up to Vancouver? You know, we're talking about Red being like 16, 17 years old when he's doing this. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah. And that kind of gave him, I think, a little bit of the nerves to start, you know, hitting up 
the rest of the people, um, everybody from Buddy Holly to Johnny Cash to to Bill Haley, um, I because nobody, I'm look, I I'm sure there he had that voice inside of his head like everybody does that says what are you doing you shouldn't be doing this you're just a kid <laughs> but then the other part of it is that he's looking at the superstars of the time against all odds getting 20,000 screaming other teenagers into an arena for the first time in their lives these people are touring you get to see the body you get to see them live in person and so Nobody really said, I'm sure, like, you can't do this because nobody knew what you actually could do back then in the 1950s. Yeah. 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 When you think back about, you know, the very first rock and roll concert ever in Vancouver, that's credited to be the Bill Haley and the Comet show, 1956. And there was Red Robinson. He was there from the very beginning. And then you talk about some of these other giant names. Buddy Holly. I mean, my goodness. Let's listen to Red Robinson here and his interview with Buddy Holly in Vancouver. Let's listen. We're backstage here at the Georgia Auditorium for the biggest record star show for 1957, talking to Buddy Holly. Hello, Red. How are you? This is your song, Peggy Sue, that you do on a solo there on Coral Records. Is it Coral in the States, too? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, it's doing real well. It's number seven song here, and uh, that's lucky number seven, as we say every Well, that's fine. <laughs> well, how long have you had the crickets together, buddy? Since January. Since January. Uh-huh. When did you uh, decide to form a group? Was it at that time? Well, uh, we just, uh, the drummer and myself have been playing together about four years, and uh, we got the other two boys and asked them if they'd like to join us and form a group. Amazing there. Boy, Red Robinson uh, talking so to Buddy Holly. Eric, your thoughts? So good. So yeah. good. I'm looking at a picture of Buddy Holly right now where while I'm wearing my buddy specs. That that stuff is really special and so innocent. Like, hey, so you put together a group. Yeah, we got some drummers and we got some boys <laughs> in the band and we just formed a group. And lo and behold, we're gonna change music and art and culture and fashion and history and political science. Everything. Everything changed in Canada <laughs> when Red Brother was around. And and we owe so much thanks to him for that. I think one of the things that jumped out at me there in that clip is, is the obvious talent that Red had, his very his confidence, his ease, his interviewing skills there, talking to a guy like Buddy Holly, and uh, boy, it just Eric, you know, it just sounds like Red just he was born to do this. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, and I I don't believe that Red had this kind of ego in there. But there are certain people when you're a teenager and you spot a talent like radio or television or music or acting, um, especially with radio hosts, you can look at them and you can say, wow, aren't you nervous to talk to Buddy Holly or, you know, hang out with Elvis? But there's something in the back of their mind that always says, yeah, but they're on my show. They come to see me, too. And so I think Red might have had a little bit of that. He was very well aware of the importance that he was having in the city and in the province and in the country um, because nobody was really playing rock and roll when he was. Um, So I think a little bit of it was that self-confidence, but he was trying to help these people. He knew he was a fan of these people just as much. So I'm sure he got a thrill hanging out with them as Buddy Holly did talking to the legendary Red Robinson. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Speaking to Eric Alper about the life and legacy of Red Robinson, so sad we lost Red on the weekend, but man, the memories and the legacy that he left behind. Of course, one of the great stories, Eric, for your thoughts, the Beatles and their legendary concert and coming to Vancouver, of course, Red was the, the MC of the Beatles show and famously stepped to the mic in the middle of the show after some kids started getting crushed against a fence here at the front of the stage. So let's have a listen here. Let's go back to the Beatles show in Vancouver. Let's have a listen. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure on behalf of P, uh, the PNE and CFON to present the Beatles! Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. We'd like to... I hate to... Uh, look, at we've got to back some of the people up. There's been two kids crushed already. They'll have to cancel the show. Oh boy, 1964 there, Empire Stadium, Red Robinson introducing the Beatles. And, and uh, Red has told the famous story many times, Eric, about how he, had, he was asked by the police, go up and make an announcement to keep these kids safe from getting crushed there. And John Lennon didn't really like to see someone up on stage here and called him out. I think he actually even swore at Red 
And then Red told him, look, the police asked me to come up here and make an announcement. And uh, Lennon said, oh, well, carry on then. Your thoughts. (laughs) And that was the last time that John Lennon was actually polite to any police officer. (laughs) Right. Yeah, amazing boy. The, the Beatles. Imagine being part of being a part of the Beatles and every and everyone else. Like, what would you say is the the legacy that he leaves behind? How would how would you sum this up? I mean, we only scratched the surface here of his career. Yeah. He had a, a very long. Yeah, career. just the fact that you know he he was so at ease talking to nobody in the room with the microphone, um, and then being able to speak yeah. in front of twenty thousand people in an arena trying to get the crowd to calm down during a Beatles show. I, he was at ease with people. And, and um, you know, his legacy, I mean, look, there's absolutely no question in my mind. Um, without Red, um, rock and roll is not the same. Um, the artist that we've known and loved for six decades since um, may not have some of the success. And certainly it's a squiggly line, but there is absolutely a line drawn between Red's support of music in Vancouver NBC in Canada and the success that Canadian artists have had to this day through the Randy Bachmans of the world, the Andy Kims, um, Brian Adams, 5440, right up until the weekend. It's his it's his groundwork that was laid for all of those bands to follow in. And he will be absolutely sadly missed. But what a legacy he's left. Oh, and by the way, yeah, well, that is really well said, Eric. And by the way, he loved Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver, this was this was his city. He never wanted to leave. I know he had opportunities to to go elsewhere. He he had opportunities to go to the United States, be a big star there. He had been called the, the Dick Clark of Canada. I mean, he could have been big anywhere he went, but I know he, he loved he loved Vancouver. He loved this city. Yeah. 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 And and you know, even though that you know, he was kind of drafted into the U.S. Army and he was in Portland for about two years. When he moved back here in 61, um, that was it. And starting an ad agency after that and promoted shows. Um, but uh, but yeah, just just the ability for him to. And he said it right at the top of the show is that he got to do what he wanted to do his entire yeah. life. And with that, I mean, how how what else can you say about a life lived as successful and happy and thrilling as as somebody being right in the center of rock and roll for six decades. I love it, Eric. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts and your memories of Red today. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much for having me. We'll talk soon. All right, here we go now with the minimum wage in British Columbia, currently $15.65 an hour. How much will the minimum wage increase this year now if you think back to last year the government talked a lot about pegging the minimum wage increase to the inflation rate well with inflation galloping ahead so strongly here if they do that again this year you're looking at a potential very significant increase in the minimum wage inflation over six percent last year if they hike up the minimum wage by that same amount in british columbia how will that affect business in our province, especially small business? But do people who are workers, workers who are making minimum wage, do they need and deserve a significant hike? Got a great panel standing by to discuss this for you. Both sides of it. Have a listen to this here first. You'll hear Global News reporter Richard Zussman and also Joshua Goyert, who's the owner of Jones Barbecue in Victoria on the minimum wage. Have a listen. The margins are so small that you really can't continue to pass that buck on to the customers. And an extra serving is on the way. The provincial government is expected to announce the minimum wage is going up again on June 1st. It's good. Uh, People need a living wage, but it makes it hard to do business. All right, let's discuss now. I got both sides of it. Jim Stanford. Jim is an economist, Center for Future Work, and he supports increasing the minimum wage According to the inflation rate. Hey, Jim. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is Annie Dormuth. Annie is the Provincial Affairs Director, Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and she's got lots of concerns about this. Hi, Annie. Hi, great to be on the show, Mike. Yeah, it's great to have you both here. Thank you both for doing it. Jim, let me go to you first. Let's talk about the minimum wage and how much it, it should go up this year. Fifteen sixty-five an hour right now. You think it should be indexed to inflation, right? 
it should be at least indexed to inflation, uh, Mike. Uh, if you raise it at the same rate as inflation, then all you're doing is preserving the real purchasing power of that minimum wage. And remember, these are the people at the lowest end of our labor market, so they need every penny. Over time, frankly, the minimum wage should grow faster than the rate of inflation because we have, a, in theory, a rising standard of living, increasing labor productivity, and low-wage workers should get some of that. So the, the bare minimum would be to increase the minimum, minimum wage by at least the rate of inflation. Okay, well, the inflation rate, let's go to Annie Dormuth on that. The inflation rate last year, Annie, was what, over 6%, right? Well, that's exactly, well, I think first things first here, and that's really the government needs to make this announcement and make an announcement soon on what its intentions are. Um, We're we're two months, you know, out of that June 1st uh, deadline or period here, and business owners want to prepare. They want to know and, uh, and what to expect come June 1st and what this increase will look like. So that, that's, our, I think, our first ask of the provincial government is to come clear with what its intentions will be on June 1st. Yeah, for sure. We're still in a bit of a waiting game and a guessing game here. If they did go, if they did match the minimum wage hike to the inflation rate, I mean, if we're looking at, what, a 6.6% inflation rate last year, that would see the minimum wage jump to, what, 16, almost 16.50 an hour. What would do, Annie, what are your thoughts on that, that scale of an increase? What would that do to business? Well, exactly what that business owner was saying, uh, talking to Richard there, is that they're operating on very tight margins right now. Uh, they have little ability to really pass on the cost to their customers, understanding that it is a very price-sensitive market. So ultimately, you know, this, this comes at a very, very difficult time for business owners, much like all people right now. And that's, that's really going to be the impact is, is this is yet another cost increase on top of many cost increases that you and I have talked about on this show before that the government keeps putting on the backs of small businesses. Jim, what do you say to that? Well, if we want to talk about tight margins, uh, Mike, let's think about the tight margin that a household has when they're trying to pay their bills, their rent, their food, uh, their other necessities of life. And for low-wage workers, uh, that margin is zero or less than zero. We've seen many Canadians turn to food banks, in fact, because they can't afford the price of groceries anymore. So uh, it is a challenge for business, of course, to have higher costs. Now, remember, inflation also means that the revenues of businesses, big and small, uh, are increasing as well as their costs. And the data from last year shows that small business profits in Canada were up uh, quite healthily, 13% last year twice as fast as average wages grew. So, yes, it's not handy for businesses, large or small, to pay higher wages, and I understand why business lobbyists are going to oppose that. But for the workers who actually produce the value added there, um, they need this just in order to uh, meet the necessities uh, of life. Another thing for low-income workers, the, the inflation that they experience is actually higher on average than that overall inflation rate that we've been citing. Uh, This is because low-income people pay more of their income towards necessities like shelter, food, and energy than higher-income people. So the official CPI index actually understates the uh, total inflation experienced by low-income households. So even matching inflation won't quite protect the standard of living for low-wage workers. Okay, talking about the minimum wage, Jim Stanford, Annie Dormuth are my guests. Annie, you just heard Jim there talk about the profit levels for small business in Canada. Uh, Well, you represent small business there at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Is it really going that well for small business right now? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure where those numbers are coming from. I mean, I read our survey comments every single month here, and I'm on the phone lines with our members And that's not at all what we're hearing. Um, Only half of D.C. small businesses are back to what they consider pre-pandemic sales right now. On top of that, they're dealing with government-imposed costs, both federally and provincially. And on top of that, they're struggling to pay back all that pandemic-related debt that they took on simply to survive uh, pandemic-related restrictions that absolutely devastated their business. So uh, with one in five businesses in D.C. actively considering bankruptcy or closure, I'm not entirely sure where those figures are, are coming from, and definitely not what we're hearing from our members. Um, well, I can answer that, I can answer that question. Okay, go ahead, Mike, Jeff. I can say where the figures came from. It's uh, Statistics Canada's uh, gross domestic product and national income account. So that is a somewhat more reliable source of data than the 
CFIB surveys of their own uh, members. Same goes for the bankruptcy numbers. Yes, there are business bankruptcy numbers, but business bankruptcies actually fell dramatically during the pandemic, and they have increased, but just back to where they were before the pandemic. So I'm not disputing that it's hard to run a small business. It absolutely is. But the idea that small business is on the abyss is not consistent with the uh, official statistics we get. And yet, if you run a business that's having a hard time, you can't really expect your minimum wage workers to subsidize you. You'll have to find another solution to try and stay in business and uh, keep your revenues and your bottom line healthy. Annie, what do you say to that? Well, again, our recommendation has always been uh, we've seen these minimum wage increases, and, and rightfully so. They are designed to, again, help those low income but we've, we've had year over year of increases here, and we still have these systemic problems. Um, our, our call to the, really the, the B.C. government is look at other tools in their toolkit to help, help lower income. Look at possibly free bus passes or things like that or increasing the basic personal income amount. All of that can be taken into consideration, as well as we reiterate our calls for the government to help with, with small business costs, looking at increasing the employer health tax threshold, helping afford employer paid sick days. All of those can really go and help small businesses right now. Oh, by the way, a lot of those other cost pressures you just outlined, you touched on some of them there, Annie. And if we think about some of these other cost pressures that have gone up, whether it's the health employer's tax, the carbon tax just went up on the weekend, property tax is going up dramatically in many cities, another statutory holiday announced in British Columbia, mandatory paid sick days. What kind of impact has all that had on small businesses? And do you think if they did go for like a dramatic increase in the minimum wage, could that, you know, Jim talked about the abyss. Is that abyss real? Could some businesses actually go out of business? Well, definitely, I think accumulation of all of those, uh, uh, you know, inflationary interest rate pressures right now on top of, you know, municipal, provincial and federal cost increases, as well as this, it's important to note that any time the minimum wage does increase, it does affect uh, business owners increase in, in work safety C premiums as well. So it does have a cascading effect onto, onto those other payroll related costs. Um, over the last five years, I believe four or five years now, we've seen payroll costs increase by around 20% in the BC, and it's all related to those items, such as an employer health tax and paid sick days, and of course, work safe BC premiums. You know, really absent from the latest BC budget was really any signaling to the to the BC, I would say, business community and small businesses that the government understands their realities right now and uh, provides some cost relief to them. Okay, Jim Stanford, go ahead. Brief reply there. Well, the reality is uh, those workers have to live in order to keep getting up out of bed on Monday morning and coming to do the job that keeps those small businesses and big businesses. You know, we're talking about small businesses a lot here because somehow they're more sympathetic. But big businesses also are the ones that uh, whose wages are influenced by the minimum wage, and they have to pay higher costs as well. And if workers can't afford the basic cost of living, um, then our economy just cannot function. That's the bottom line. Okay. I want to thank both of you for a really good discussion. I'm really grateful to you for coming on and appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Annie. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, here we go with cruise ships sailing again. A record number of cruise ships expected to visit Vancouver this year. Are you ready to go cruising again? Let's discuss with my guest, Kelly Craighead. Kelly is the president and CEO 
Cruise Lines International Association. Very pleased to welcome Kelly to the show. Thanks a lot for coming in today. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to have you here. So let's talk a little bit about your work. You're the president of this association. This is a global organization, right? So, Well, that's very interesting work. So you travel around a lot? I do. So um, we call it CLIA, Cruise Lines International Association, and we represent the ocean and the river cruise lines, but we also represent all of the suppliers that supply the ships and all of the travel agents and advisors who book people on cruises, of which 55,000 travel advisors are a member of CLIA in North America alone. Wow. Okay. This is a huge business, and we've talked about it on the show here before because it's a big business multiplier. I think it's a good, great thing for tourism, but boy, you've been through some tough years with COVID. It sounds like you're roaring back here. Is that how you would characterize it? Absolutely. Yeah? Okay. So I think the intent to our research shows, I think you'll find interesting, um, that the intent to take a cruise is 87%, which is 6% higher than even before the pandemic. So I think there is a great deal of interest in experiencing so much by cruise. Okay, and the first, when do the first cruise ships arrive? Because we're getting into the cruising season here now, right? Right, so actually next week you will see the first ship come into Victoria, which is April 11th and Vancouver April 12th. Same ship? Same ship. Okay, so they stop in Victoria first and then they go on to Vancouver. Okay, is this a big ship coming in? Um, it depends on how you define big. Right. <laughs> but I think what you know best in Vancouver is just how many ships come through of different sizes, with different types of experiences that they're offering. And so we're really looking forward to the Sapphire Princess, which is the one that will come into Ogden Point um, next Tuesday and then on to Vancouver again, as I said, on the 12th. Okay, and that will be the first of, of many, right? Like how many are we expecting in Van- in Vancouver this year? Let's right, say. so we'll, you'll have a little bit more than 380 ships come through. Wow. The difference between this year and last year is you know, after being closed for two years, Canada was closed for two years for yeah. cruising, is that you'll see some of these ships have even more capacity, which I think makes some people nervous. But I really want to make a point that cruise tourism is actually managed tourism. So everyone in the city, all of the stakeholders know when a ship is coming, knows how many people are coming, and then we can work well with the different stakeholders in the area to make sure that it's really well managed so it's not overwhelming. Okay, when you say that makes some people nervous, why would people be nervous well, about that? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's understandable. Uh, you see some of these ships are quite large visu- yeah. visually, and you can imagine thousands of people descending on some of these smaller destinations. Yeah. And it's, it's disconcerting until you really think about the fact that you have so many great restaurants, so many great retail opportunities, so much kind of growth and and product that's available for the visitors that are coming however they come. Yeah. And again, the difference between day trippers or others that might be visiting is those that are coming on a ship, you, you know in advance and you can plan. Okay. Over 300 ships expected. And then I was looking at some projected passenger numbers, what, what 1.3 million passengers? Possibly. That sounds about right. Okay, so wow. It remains to be seen, obviously. Uh, I think there were some challenges last year with Arrive Can and some of the kind of procedures that uh, were instituted in Canada that have been addressed this year. But we're expecting, again, a record year. Arrive Can is, is done, right? No, yes. There's no more Arrive Can app, including for cruise passengers. Well, it's no longer a requirement. Right, right. What are some of the other changes? Do you have to be? Do you have to show proof of vaccination to get on a cruise ship, or how does that work now? So I think after instituting some of the most robust health protocols during the pandemic, you can see that cruise ships are following what you can see on land. And so again, each ship has the ability to kind of ratchet up or ratchet down protocols. Yeah. But I think you'll find it's still one of the safest ways to travel. And you won't have the same kind of burdens that you had during the kind of the heart of the pandemic. And it's just a terrific way to see this beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Are you seeing a lot? I imagine there's a lot of pent up demand. Like you guys went through some brutal years here. The industry basically shut down around the world. And I remember there was there were times when people are saying, could, could this industry come back? It, yep. it sounded like it's coming back quicker than you anticipated. Like this is a record well, year we're talking about. Yeah. Here now. Well, and last year was a record year. I wow. think. Cruisers love to cruise. So yeah. I think during the pandemic, you saw cruisers booking so many cruises. And that's why the CLIA research is so interesting is because people who are new to cruise, 
their intention to cruise is so much higher than it was before the pandemic. So I think from a consumer demand standpoint, it is off the charts, and it really is because it's the best way to see the world. Right. And as for you were talking about cruising safely, right? So, you know, hopefully we don't go through any more sort of nightmares with COVID, but for people who are wondering, oh, gee, I'm not sure I want to get on a cruise ship right now. What if I get sick? What what can you say about that? Like, what would you say to reassure people? Obviously, a lot of people are quite willing to get on a cruise ship again. Right. I mean, a cruise ship is really one of the safest ways to travel for a number of reasons. But one thing I think people don't know is that they have state-of-the-art medical facilities and medical care providers. So depending on the type of health care you have access to, in some cases, you have better access to health care on a cruise ship than you do Mm. on land. Right. And then as for what about the staff and the the crew? Are they required to be vaccinated? Is that still a rule? Yes. So all of the crew is still vaccinated um, and follow really robust health protocols themselves. Right. And again, I think even now you're seeing a lower incident of any kind of spread on a cruise ship than you will anywhere else. Right. Okay. It's really interesting to see this industry come roaring back like this. Now, the cruise ship industry has its critics, of course, right? We talked about that, some of these issues on the show in the past, some of the environmental impacts, right? Like for cruise ships dumping sewage into the water. Is that true? Like, do they dump, cruise ships dump untreated sewage into the water? Yeah, absolutely not true. In fact, I think that you'll see um, the way that waste is processed. Um, There are advanced wastewater treatment systems that are so advanced that have maintained such a high degree of standards that you see many of the coastal communities stepping up to reach that same level of standards. In fact, I think here in Victoria, they now have a treatment facility that will meet and reach the standard that has been long set by cruise ships. Right. Okay. And for people who are interested in, in cruising again, are are the companies, if there's such big demand, are prices going up too or still bargains out there? So far, there's still bargains. So there's a a wave season. Uh, People start to book cruises in January. This is the strongest wave season we've seen in years, but there's still a good value to be had. And so one of the things that's interesting about cruise, Mike, is that there's such a range of products. So it's not fair to actually say it's cheap, although you could find a cheap deal. It's always true that there's great value. So even if you're in the ultra luxury category or if you're in a more mass market category, you're going to get more bang for your buck than anywhere else. How is the industry doing in Vancouver? I mean, obviously you've got, you've just outlined a record year you anticipate, but I know that the industry in the past had been lobbying for improvements in the, in the birthing facilities, for example, at the, at the, in Vancouver. How are we doing in, in that regard? Like, is, is there something, is there any way that you think Vancouver could do things better for the industry? Well, you know, I think there is a shared commitment to a a net zero carbon future. So we do appreciate the shoreside electricity capabilities in Vancouver, Vancouver, which makes it really unique. But I think we can all work better together on a collaborative front because I think the future is kind of unclear. So the more we can work together to develop infrastructure like you see with shoreside electrical capabilities, and to invest in the kind of innovation that's going to be necessary to propel, from an energy standpoint, any kind of vehicle uh, or mode of transportation. I think there's opportunities for public-private partnerships to make those kinds of advancements. And I think you see good partnerships with all of the coastal communities from Seattle to Alaska. Busy season ahead, for sure. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and coming in. I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Mike. appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.